Hey there, Bulldogs. I'm Mr. Rabulin, and welcome to Rabuland. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Welcome to Rabuland, where we explore the field of psychology while preparing you for the AP Psych Exam. Today, we'll be going over topic 7.5 and 7.10 in the AP curriculum, where we will be introduced to the psychological concept of personality and how psychologists have historically tried to measure it. So if you're following along in my PowerPoint, I'm going to be going over topic 7.5 and 7.10, which should correlate with your Cornell notes. When we talk about what is personality, personality is a very complicated concept within the field. And to this day, we have working definitions but not an official definition that anybody can really agree upon. For our class, the best definition that I can come up for you uh, for the idea of personality is that it's a unique and relatively stable pattern of behavior, characteristics, thoughts, and emotions. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of you at one point in your life have taken like a BuzzFeed quiz or, or one of those random quizzes that tells you like what kind of taco you are on a Tuesday or which Kardashian are you most like. And even though these like pop psychology or pop like celebrity quizzes are fun to take, they do point at a particular desire within the human psyche to figure out who are they really. Um, and personality is a really integral part of who we perceive we are to be, especially when we interact with other people. Now, the ancient Greeks had an idea of, of personality as well. What they did was that they had a theory about the different types of bodily fluids that you have, and we call those the four humors. And so the four humors theory is this idea that depending on what type of bodily fluid you have inside of your body, um, like if you have an abundance of that particular type of thing, you would have a particular personality trait or you would have or you would be more predisposed to a particular um type of living for example if you had red blood if you had a lot of red blood um you would be considered sanguine like a um you would joke and laugh and uh you would be considered like slightly tinted and red just because you're always in this like very happy and jovial kind of manner um, but those people who have like, for example, yellow bile, um, like bile is produced in the liver and was considered by the Greeks to cause bitterness or having a short temper or having some or having a personality that was daring and um, and was unafraid of doing really wild things. Um, now, obviously, modern science has disproved this theory, but it does goes to show the fact that humans have always tried to figure out how and where we have these differences within our personalities and so the various personality theories that we're going to be talking about in the next podcast are going to help us understand just what has psychology tried to figure out or theorized in the past 100 years that we've been able to actually measure personality so there are some common research methods when it comes to understanding personality. So most of the time we rely on two major methods. One of them is going to be case studies and the other one is going to be surveys or personality inventories. 
Now, if you're looking at the screen, if you're following my PowerPoint, you're gonna see a picture of um, a dude in the window there. And uh, his name is Ted Bundy. He's very popular now as a source of like, or as a subject matter of um, like, I think a Netflix series and like podcasts about him. And uh, he got a lot of press uh, just because in around 1989, he was discovered to be a serial killer. He was connected to about 30 homicides of women across like a multiple state area. I think it was like nine states or something like that. But this guy, Ted Bundy, he, when he was described by witnesses to him, like in neighborhoods and people who had interacted with him, like they mentioned that he was very charismatic. He was very kind and very nice, and charming and seductive. And all of those personality traits are things that you would normally consider to be connected to people who are actually nice people. Um, but in reality, he killed so many people and he was a sociopath and um, he exerted horrible control over his victims. And he died in 1989 when he was um, executed by the electric chair here in Florida. And so it makes us wonder when we do case studies on people like this, on serial killers, or on particular people who exhibit particular traits, um, case studies allow us to look at these specific personality traits. But remember, case studies are limited in their scope. They don't have a lot of generalizability. It's hard for us to, to see if these types of traits are commonly found in people who are like uh, people like Ted Bundy, or even people who we consider heroic or important to remember, like George Washington or Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Now, further attempts at trying to figure out whether there is a unified set of characteristics that are connected to particular personalities are where we see surveys and personality inventories come into view. So, um, Real psychological surveys and personality inventories, or the ones that are at least very common in the field nowadays, um, try to identify um, patterns of personality traits that exist within the individual based on what we've been able to observe about people who hold those particular types of traits. So for example, a person who um, has good grades, is very organized, is very um, uh, is very hardworking and persistent in getting what they want and things like that. Maybe these types of personality traits would be associated with a student who is very hardworking or uh, a person who works at an office who's really hardworking. So we wanna see if those are things that we consistently see across a lot of different people um, in a lot of different places and in a lot of different scenarios. Um, so surveys and personality inventories are really helpful at kind of helping people gauge whether they hold that unified pattern of characteristics when it comes to a personality. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a short break uh, to allow you to write any notes uh, that you need to. And after this, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some other tests that have been historically used uh, in the field of psychology to measure personality and we're going to dive deeper into how personality inventories became very popular and then also some other 
tests or of personalities that you may have heard in pop culture. So I'll give you a second to write your notes and then we'll come back. So when discussing the idea of using a test to determine a particular psychological quality about a person, we have to talk about two important principles, reliability and validity. Now, reliability is a scientific concept that basically asks us the question, how consistent is the test or the measure in measuring the thing we want to measure? For example, if you used a scale that said you were 300 pounds one day, and then the next time you used it, it said you were 150 pounds, and then another day it said that you were 210 pounds, we wouldn't consider that scale or that weight reliable because the measure that we're using or the instrument that we're using, which would be a scale, is inaccurate or doesn't give us consistent readings over time. And so in the same way, if a personality test, if we take a personality test and we take it one day and then a year later we take it again and we get a different result, then we would start to wonder if this test was actually measuring who we are. Now, the obvious problem with with determining reliability on a personality test is that people are not born in a vacuum. They change and they can become different over time, um, even though the general consensus, consensus in the psychological research is that personality remains pretty stable over time. So reliability is just one of those things, but validity is another scientific concept that we need to consider. It's, does the measure actually claim to, or does it actually measure what it claims to measure? So let's say with the scale, you're measuring in pounds, but you can't use it to measure temperature. There is a particular scenario, a particular context in which we use the reading to determine a particular thing about the world. Now, one of the things we talk about in psychological research is generalizability. How generalizable, how relatable, how applicable is this research to the real world? So yeah, you may get a reading about your personality, but how meaningful is it when we start applying it to helping us understand real world situations like our relationships or even our relationship with ourselves? So again, the two things that we need to kind of consider with personality tests is how reliable or valid are they? Now, there are a couple of very popular and famous personality inventories. Um, one of the assignments that I've had you do already has put you in contact with one that I think is the most famous at the moment, or at least was recently famous in like the 2010s or even in the late 2000s. But the one, the first one I'm going to talk about is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Now, this entire personality inventory, which is very long based on the last time that I took it in grad school, it's basically true or false statements. It's a whole list of true or false statements that is used to kind of diagnose a particular, a particular personality traits that would exist about you. Um, a lot of corporations use this 
as a way to gauge personality in uh, potential hires. Um, I've heard of organizations using this to see if um, the new employee or the potential hire is compatible with the rest of the personalities of the work team that are there. Um, and so the MMPI has been used in a lot of ways and is considered a, a lot of ways in terms of it's been used to um, help employers kind of figure out uh, what type of personalities they want in their teams and in their organizations. Um, and it's uh, something that has been consistently used here in the United States um, as a personality test. Um, I've seen it used in multiple psychological clinics that I've worked for. So that's something that uh, speaks to how, you know, how widespread its usage is. Now, the one that you guys have done in your assignments and uh, one that you may have seen on the internet a lot lately is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Now, the Myers-Briggs type indicator or the MBTI um, is based on personality types that, are ident are, that were identified by a man named Carl Jung. Now, Carl Jung has a theory about personality that we're actually going to talk about in the next podcast. But really quickly, he has this idea that there are certain archetypes. There are certain types of people that are common to most, if not all, uh, cultures. It's connected to something called the collective conscious. And so he believes that it is... It is very common for us to see certain types of personalities and certain types of people in every single culture because it's essential to the survival of cultures. And they operate almost as like a unifying force within society. So um, now the MBTI was developed by two ladies, one of them named Myers, the other one named Briggs. And uh, they basically use these archetypes to come up with um, a combination of 16 different unique personalities that exist on the range of these archetypes that Carl Jung had previously described. So these two, the MMPI and the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the MBTI, are very commonly seen as uh, personality inventories um, in the places where I've worked. Um, now, there are others like the NEO person personal um, inventory that are based on other types of models that um, discuss personality. Again, we're going to be discussing uh, different theories of personality in the next podcast when we go through uh, the different types of theories and the different types of schools of thought when it comes to personality. Now, in the PowerPoint, I've included for you um, some slides that describe some of the personality types the specific ins and outs of uh, the MBTI. So for example, extroverts versus introverts, uh, people who sense the world rather than people who are intuitives, um, people who are thinkers versus feelers and judges per versus perceivers. So looking at the various combinations that each of these letters can bring to a personality, um, you end up with a four-letter code that gives you an that could give you an idea as to uh, who you are and an explanation as to why you react to certain situations and um, certain 
concepts within your life and uh, certain real world kind of experiences in the way that you do. So for example, I am a person who would be categorized as an introvert. I enjoy, I don't mind working alone. Um, I don't really mind working in a group either, but I I do tend to find myself working alone or thriving by working alone. And uh, introverts usually focus on one task at a time rather than multitasking. Now, obviously that's one small part of the entire personality description. And so when you combine it with the other letters or the descriptions of the other letters, you start to see a little bit more of a holistic understanding of the person. Now, obviously some of you may think like, sir, the reality of the situation is that these four letters can really operate almost like a horoscope, like they're vague enough to be relevant to you, but um, can apply to anyone who finds themselves in particular situations where they need to be organized and compassionate and gentle. Um, that's obvious. That's an obvious scenario. And that's one of the downfalls of these types of personality inventories is that um, sometimes the descriptions of who you are and the results can be so vague that it can apply to a variety of situations. Like, obviously, you have to be organized and you have to be disciplined when you're working as a first responder, even though in your personal life, you may not necessarily have a personality trait that's like that. So, again, that's something to consider when looking at these personality inventories. Are you consistent across a whole range of scenarios and a whole range of life events? Or do you find yourself moving into certain features of your personality that become prominent in particular times of your life? Like, um, do you work hard at work and are organized at work and are and you seek harmony and cooperation and things like that? But when you're at home, you tend to, you know, like you tend to stay by yourself. Or are you that type of person who enjoys hanging out with other people after work? Um, that would be a little bit more extroverted. So again, it really depends on, um, really depends on how you interpret these types of things, or at least it is open to a lot of human interpretation. Now, even more so than a personality inventory in terms of its subjectivity is something known as a projective test. Now, projective tests were very popular and still sort of popular among a particular set of psychologists. Um, but these projective tests are that can be very subjective. So essentially a projective test is a test or a method that attempts to reveal unconscious thoughts or beliefs about the universe by having the person who is taking the test verbally express their issues in response to a very ambiguous figure, okay? So if you have ever come into contact with something called a Rorschach ink block test, ink block test, now, um, you probably have seen uh, these cards or these like slides of white and then usually it'll be like a black and white image and it's literally an ink blot. It's a spot, um, but it's, you know, formulated in a particular way where people can see images into the ambiguous figure that's in front of them. And so... Um, what a psychologist or a therapist or a scorer of this test would do is that they would have the patient or the client look at this spot or this image 
And they would ask them in a very short amount of time to give them their initial reaction, to give the score, the, the client's initial reaction to what they see. Now, depending on how common that particular response is, it will get them or garner them a particular amount of points. So these Rorschach inkblot tests um, are really skewed towards people seeing very common things. Like um, in one image, in the first image that I have in the PowerPoint, uh, people generally see a dog. Uh, they'll see a goat sometimes. Uh, and then other times they'll see, um, they'll see something like a... Uh, a jack-o'-lantern or um, a goblin or something like that, that's still pretty common in regards to what people generally see. Um, actually, in fact, that, that image that you see as, as the first image in the PowerPoint is usually the first image that a lot of people uh, see when they take a full Rorschach test. So... Now, if a client or a patient sees that image and they see something that's really outlandish or um, or like is, is very rare or is very alarming or very uncommon, as the score would say, then that would basically give the, the scorer um, a way to uh, collect data in such a way where therapists or somebody else who sees the data would help the client kind of explore some of the reasons why they came up with that image. The whole goal of these inkblot tests is to get people to expose what exists unconsciously underneath them. And Freud and all of the other psychoanalysts and psychodynamic uh, theorists who came after him believed that Deep down, beyond our ability to understand things, there is the unconscious mind. And the unconscious mind is the source of a lot of weird things um, or a, a source of a lot of the motivations that we have that we may not even realize. Um, and so Freud believed that by bringing the unconscious into the conscious and having us work with that, um, it enabled people to really delve into the reasons why they had particular psychological problems in their lives. So that's um, that's one projective test. Now, another projective uh, test is called the thematic apperception test or the TAT. Now, it works similar to the Rorschach inkblot test in that um, people are asked to respond to an ambiguous image, but... In the TAT, you're asked to create a story based in response to an ambiguous image. And the image can involve one, two, or more people in a particular setting. Now, the nature, the thing is that the, the image is so random or so ambiguous that it's really up to the viewer to decide the relationship between the figures, to decide whether there are other figures that aren't shown in the image that should be shown later or, or should be talked about. So, for example, the first image that you see with a boy sitting in a doorway, an open doorway uh, connected to what looks like a rundown wooden house, some people would describe the boy as lonely or depressed as he looks out from his house. 
Um, and people would attach meaning to the house as well. The house looks decrepit. It looks like something that you would normally see in a developing country. And the boy looks poor because he's not wearing any shoes. And um, But then some people would describe the boy as waiting for someone or being followed or watched by someone. And this is where the descriptions really get interesting because... Um, it now delves into the way that people perceive relationships. And this is, this is really fun for, for therapists or psychologists who would choose to use this test because it really can create a lot of therapeutic dialogue between the, the therapist and the client in terms of why do you believe that that relationship exists there? Why do you believe that that boy feels that way? Do you feel that way? Have you seen people in your life feel that way? So it can be a an, an very interesting experience um, when it comes to unveiling some of the, the quote-unquote hidden meanings that exist within certain pictures. Now, I've left two other pictures there for you in the PowerPoint. One of a, uh, a man who is on a bed and a woman who has her face in her hand as she is holding um, a doorknob. And then I've included another one with a younger lady and an older woman. Um, so uh, do this with your friends, with your parents, uh, with uh, people who you know, and uh, ask them what do they see in the picture um, and why do they see th certain things. And you're going to discover that certain features are very common for people to bring up, but there may be other unique things that may be unique to the individual in the way that they see that picture. And if you dig deep enough, and if you ask long enough, you may be able to get a very interesting story out of why they see those types of things. So again, um, at least from the clinician point of view, based on my own experience, projective tests can be really useful. As Like the strength of a projective test uh, can be useful in the sense that like it can be used in therapeutic situations to encourage dialogue between the client and the patient. But if we're going to use this as like a measure of personality, these projective tests are way too subjective, very low validity. Um, and the problem is, is that the scores, if you get scores, um, are very subjective based on the score. Um, from therapist to therapist or score to score, you may get different scores just because the way that the tests are set up, it's supposed to respond to ambiguity. Um, there's no standardized understanding of what people are supposed to see in these images anyways. Now, going on the theme of like understanding strengths and weaknesses of all of these different tests, um, self-report personality inventories like the MMPI and the Myers-Briggs type indicator also has their own strength, like has their own strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, they have a higher reliability and validity than projective tests because they are standardized. Um, you're going to get the same questions every time that you take it. But at the same time, with the problem with surveys and with self-report inventories is that participants, participants who take these tests can feel pressured into uh, feel pressured or feel moved to answer in such a way that pulls a particular personality out. So maybe they desire a particular personality that is not theirs. And so they answer in such a way that would make them look like they have a particular personality when in fact they maybe don't. Um, and 
On top of that, these personality inventories are really long. They can go into the hundreds of questions. So participants may run through the questions without actually thinking them through. Now, finally, as with case studies or like naturalistic observations or interviews, the strength of these types of research is that they focus on really observable behaviors and you're getting standardized responses because you're getting them from the same place. You're getting them from one source. But again, since you're only getting it from one source, you run the risk of having this like participant bias. Um, maybe the participant wants to make themselves look better in a particular light um, as they are responding to the score. Well, Bulldogs, that's it for today's lecture on topic 7.5 and 7.10, introducing us to the psychological concept of personality. Make sure to join me for the next podcast where we'll be talking about some common psychological theories to explain personality and its development over time. Until then, happy learning. <laughs>